Men, Sexism and Banter at Curious Pastimes. Content warning. Discussion of everyday acts of sexism and misogyny, homophobia, racism, classism and sexual grooming. Written by Simon Brewis. If you'd like to see this article in text form with referencing, it's available on the Seeing the Invisible Man website. This article is about a social space I hold dear to my heart, and how we are addressing everyday sexism in that space. I see this task as part of an ongoing quest to make our particular little world safer, more accessible and more fun to be part of. The piece begins from a desire to explore and highlight our approach, which involves men being called upon to share in the labour of confronting everyday sexism. Following an interview with Dom, the community leader who set things in motion, my focus has widened to consider how cultures of banter can become barriers to inclusion, safety and having a good time. A bit of housekeeping. The social world I refer to is the Algaia faction at Curious Pastimes live roleplay game. You don't need to be an LRPer to follow the article, as the ideas transfer into any social space. If LRP isn't your world though, and you'd like to get a handle on the context, there's a short video linked in the text version of this article. It's helpful to understand that a festival LARP happens over a long weekend on a campsite. The event discussed has close to a thousand players, subdivided into seven factions. Factions are all allied, but have different cultures and shared identities as part of the game's story. Logistically, they camp together and have their own leadership structure, known as a command team. Players often visit the camps of other factions, but there's one we each call home. I've been playing in the Algaia faction for around 10 years, and the CP game for close to 20 years. It's the end of an event. As is tradition, we gather around our command team for a quick debrief before we take the tents down. One of the command team, a man called Dom, politely asks if all the men would stay after for an extra chat. He tells everyone that there's been an incident of sexism over the weekend, and that it's the work of men to address this issue. Importantly, he quickly adds that women, or people with other gender identities, who want to take part in the chat, can also stay. All the men stay, and I estimate around half of the women and others stay as well. How Dom handled gender at this moment was pivotal and empowering. Afterwards, an older and more experienced male LARPer turned to me and said, I've never seen it done like that before. That's how it should be done. Part 1. What happened and what was said. When I interviewed Dom a few weeks later, he gave me more detail about the sexist event that had taken place. A woman, who's a newish player in the Algaia, was visiting another faction's camp when male players from that camp directed crass and somewhat laddish jokes towards her. Dom explains. When she somewhat politely called them on their sexist comments, the men, and other people around them, decided to have a long chat about what was and wasn't okay at LARP. Whether they meant this in good faith or not, she was there to play a game, and not be the focus of sexist comments, or take part in a labour discussion about what is or isn't appropriate language for men to use towards women they don't know. 
I recognise this sort of conversation, and I understand how it can happen in good faith, as Don puts it. I also recognise how conversations like this can inevitably shield men from taking responsibility for, or the consequences of, sexist acts. I want to raise awareness of how this can play out, but I also want to make it clear that this is not about blaming individuals. It doesn't really matter now who these folk were, or what faction it took place in. It matters that we try and recognise the innate capacity within ourselves to fall into similar patterns of behaviour. Addressing sexism is fractious, and as many feminists point out, it's hard work. When people say sexist things in social spaces, it's almost always easier to avoid having to recognise what just happened especially if the perpetrators have power behind them, or if onlookers have a positive relationship or friendship with the perpetrators. Faced with the difficulty of having to see acts of sexism and deal with the fractious social consequences, it often becomes easier to reach for a polite social mechanism to absolve the perpetrator. Questions such as, was that language okay? or was that sexism, or just a joke, can become a convenient escape route. Powerful, unseen social forces guide us blissfully towards the inevitable conclusion that nothing of note took place at all, when of course it did. Such invisible acts require a victim's testimony to be brought into question. In a case of everyday sexism, this discrediting can take the form of quite polite and seemingly reasonable discourse. You appear to be confused. You've misunderstood. It was only a joke. These subconscious social cues are taught to almost all of us as part of growing up, and they're usually not willfully malicious acts. They are also not inevitable. We can unlearn these social cues if we choose to see them. Obviously, being on the receiving end of this kind of experience was deeply unfun for the Argyan player. Fortunately, she could at least leave the situation and go back to her own camp where things would feel safer. Although as Dom explains, later that evening, the people who had made the sexist jokes came to our camp to socialise with friends. Seeing them laughing and taking part in our camp made her feel uncomfortable. Not because they had no right to be there, they had every right to be there and to have fun, but because she could not be confident that the jokes would not be repeated, and if they were, could she risk calling them out again? Maybe she might be dismissed again. Feeling like this in our camp was a bit rubbish. Thankfully, some players from our camp were super amazing and took her for food. They believed her and afterwards she felt good and enjoyed playing the rest of the event. If that hadn't happened, she could just as easily have ended up back at her tent reading a book and generally having a bad time. It is possible we might have never seen that player again. When Dom called us together, he pointed out that we could not affect what other people did in their own camps. The rules of the game do, however, allow command teams to take action to keep their players safe in their camps and to keep their camps inclusive. 
he suggested an agreement between us, an unwritten rule, a camp convention. If visitors to our camp make sexist jokes or comments, then any of us can intervene in a specific way. We should immediately drop character, i.e. make it clear we are no longer playing the game. Then, politely explain that we do not welcome that kind of humour in the Agaya camp. If behaviour is not adjusted, or a fuss is made, we are empowered to politely ask them to leave the camp and play their game somewhere else. Importantly, if these steps are followed, any of us have the full support of the command team. This was generally agreed. An experienced player asked the reasonable question, what should we do if we don't feel safe or comfortable intervening in this way? It was agreed that alternatively we could find a faction referee or command team member who would have the same conversation. Now it's important to recognise that this agreed response only exists within the Algaia camp, and therefore would not have stopped the new Algaia player from having the negative experience in the other camp. It would not have prevented the men who made the jokes from coming to see their friends in our camp. What it would have done is given the new Algaia player a degree of certainty about how other players would respond in our camp, because a boundary had been set. The boundary is limited, yet it makes a tangible difference to how safe and included many players feel in our camp, and to experiences of the wider game. Part 2. Feminist Work and Men's Labour I was fascinated by the particular way Dom addressed men, whilst engaging women and other genders. When we spoke later, Dom was keen to check his structural advantage. He points out that, <clears throat> I planned that response carefully. I had a captive audience, my maleness, my profile as a long-standing player, and now as a command team member, that social capital meant a lot. There are people, probably who feel the same way, who could have said what I said just as well, but without the social capital, were more likely to receive pushback. It was a use of power, but I think a justified one. I asked Dom why he decided to address men in a specific way he did, and his response was enlightening. I thought about this in terms of emotional labour and perhaps mental load. If I made my announcement to everyone without putting an emphasis on men like I did, it would have become the responsibility of whoever feels the most confident or the most put upon to call out bad behaviour. We have confident and vocal feminist women in our camp, but if the responsibility to respond is always placed on these women, it lets men off the hook again. If we do that, then we'll get one of two results. Either the environment does improve, but on the back of that female labour. Or the environment doesn't improve because these women will be scapegoated for voicing their opinion. At the same time, it's not about men. We need men to take part, but not take over. What we can understand then is that confronting sexism can often be seen as women's work, 
and men may choose to be selectively passive to avoid the difficult work of dealing with the problem. By saying men need to do the work, Dom does not mean all the work, he just means some of the work. If he'd addressed the men alone, it could have been counterproductive. The intervention worked because it came from a place of feminist thinking and engaged women and other genders and men appropriately for the context. I noticed Don was putting theoretical feminist ideas like emotional labour and mental load into practice. I asked him where this awareness came from and he smiled a broad and happy smile. I was raised, well, my mum, she was part of a Marxist feminist reading group. For a lot of my life I had three or four strong feminist women in parental roles. I had many sisters and I was the youngest, the only boy. I've been raised, given the opportunity to read and explore my political thoughts with little to no judgement in a maternal and feminist family. More recently, in my long-term relationship with a woman, we've been able to explore thoughts on mental load, emotional labour, cishegenomy, etc. We're both aware that the patriarchy benefits me, but it's bad for both of us. I suppose that made it easier to think about this situation. This opens up an important point about how men can potentially, with appropriate context and timing, make feminist interventions. Don did leverage his masculinity to help get men on board, yet the role of his masculinity can be overstated, because his thinking was in terms of feminist ideas developed by women. Care must be taken when men run with feminist thinking, as picking up women's ideas and passing them off as our own is a well-documented bit of everyday sexism. Yet, with awareness, this can be navigated. I'm still grappling with the theoretical and practical mechanics of strategies where men can destabilise oppressive masculine power by speaking feminist ideas. I'd be interested to hear from others if you know of examples where this has worked. Part 3. On banter and jokes that just aren't funny. As we spoke, Dom and I got onto the subject of how humour and banter can shape the experience of social spaces. The word humour can have two meanings, i.e. the quality of being amusing or comic, or alternatively, a mood or a state of mind. Whilst potentially separate, they are apparently linked as the jokes we tell can be indicative of or generate the mood of a social space. Dom explained that he's been thinking about how certain kinds of humour impact people. Often, in nerd spaces, you get a lot of old-school banter, roughhousing, everyone talking discursively, usually about themselves, for laughs. It's not malicious, and a lot of the time it can be fun. I've found, though, that if everyone is just nice to each other, then you still get all the friendships, but without the barbs, and you get fewer cliques. If you are new, it's easier to come into a group where everyone's being nice. 
if you come into a space where people are being mean, just jokingly, you don't know if you can join in. Recently, I've been experimenting with crew huts at events and asking everyone to try and make sure it's an overtly nice space. The response has been positive. I think everyone has more fun without certain kinds of banter. I can't help but think back to the humour I encountered as a new player at LRP 20 years ago. I experienced a lot of what I can now articulate as homophobic banter. I'm straight, but I've always had long blonde hair and when I was younger had a slight frame, so obviously I played an elf. This made me a target of homophobic jokes from some older men. Don't go in there, elf. The orcs will bum-sex you, was a common refrain. There was a consistently occurring social ritual where at any given moment groups of straight men might explode into dry-humping in a mocking parody of what they thought homosexual men might do. I vividly remember a chilling encounter where an older man decided to role-play grooming me in a parody of him grooming a child Come here, little elf. Sit on my knee. Aren't you a pretty little thing? Etc. Etc. I don't think these men thought I was gay. They were leveraging homophobic banter as a way to hold power over me as a younger straight man. Potentially evoking the gay man as a sort of boogeyman to wave in my direction. To be honest, I still haven't entirely got on my head around the psychology. It was super strange. I'm sure others found the behaviour disagreeable, but there was enough social capital at play for homophobic humour to feel normal. With that kind of banter widely accepted in social spaces, I suspect it was practically impossible for anyone gay to be out at CP at that point. There were also explicitly racist characters. Working class accents were understood to signpost dimwittedness. Many women were expected to roleplay something closer to a carry-on film than high fantasy. What links this litany of problematic behaviours is that they were all played for laughs. Twenty years later, and the humour of the game has thankfully improved, although we can see from the above that problems still persist. When thinking back upon this difficult history at CP and at LRP in general, it may be too easy to explain these shifts in behaviour as comic humour having moved on. My memory betrays this analysis. I remember knowing it wasn't okay, and it wasn't funny 20 years ago. I remember the feeling of laughing to placate those who wanted to make me or others feel uncomfortable. I'm sure that I will also have made jokes that I would cringe to remember now. If I had challenged that behaviour, I'm confident I would have been told it was just a joke. It would have been explained away. I participated, even though I knew it was wrong because that was easier. What I can see more clearly now is that the jokes were never funny to begin with, 
they were always about power in social space. The humour, in terms of mood, may have changed dramatically at LRP, but that's not because what is genuinely considered funny has really changed. It's because we are now placing clearer boundaries. It may not have been my idea to start putting such boundaries in place, but I'm happy to share in the work of the project. It appears to be both in my own interests and in others' interests. A short conclusion. Some people will not like what I'm saying. Perhaps because it does not suit their interests to have clearer boundaries in place. Part of their objection may be phrased as if boundary making in social spaces is somehow a new phenomenon. When of course it isn't. Social societies always have and always will have boundaries. Acceptable discourse. Normative behaviours that shift through time. In a world where we are increasingly aware of how power flows in all sorts of spaces, it's inevitable that we will want to make clearer and more informed choices about what is in and what is out. I argue this is the change. In the past, dominant arguments claimed that a lack of boundaries represented freedom even though it's apparent that spaces without boundaries can be dangerous and potentially oppressive. Perhaps the experience of unregulated spaces on the internet has helped identify when boundaries are needed to hold safer spaces. This understanding can be, but isn't always generational. Personally, as an elder millennial, I find myself persuaded by the more youthful argument and I'd like to be in solidarity with the course. I, for one, shall be asking folk to leave the Algaia camp if they want to make horrid jokes. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this article and you have capacity, you can help support my work through my Ko-Fi, which you'll find in the blurb. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cy underscore Brewis underscore says uh, to keep up with the next thing I write. There are several references and citations in the text version of this article on my website, including links to the feminist thinking that's helped underpin my thinking in this blog. Thanks very much for listening.